And so on the seventh day, it was good. And one day, it's going to all be good again. As someone said, everything will be okay in the end, and so if it's not okay, it's not the end. (laughs) That's what we've been seeing, and that's what we will really see today if you will turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. You might call the picture that you see up there on the screens a uh, treasure trove. It's the trove of our heavenly treasures, uh, and best of all, of our greatest treasure, our Lord and Savior. It's New Jerusalem. We've seen that so far, according to him, according to Christ in Revelation 2 and 3, the Christian life, he gives us a cliff note summary, is a momentary life of labor in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. Last week, we began looking at the treasure, having unpacked the labor in the weeks before, at the rewards that come at the end of each of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, the treasures that will come at the end of our life of labor. Today, we'll look, uh, having looked at individual treasures, we're going to look at what you might call the mother load, the consummation of it all at the eternity of treasure uh, in his presence in New Jerusalem. We saw that Christ Christ focuses on New Jerusalem in his first letter in chapter 2 at the end of the letter to Ephesus and in his last two letters at the end of them in chapter 3. And on top of this, New Jerusalem is the focus of the last two chapters of the book. Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of Scripture, of the Bible. And so it must be pretty important because it is the deepest consolation for our grief and it's the final uh, consummation of our faith. It's the heart of our hope. I saw just how true this is nine years ago uh, next month. Just before my mother passed away in November of 2010, Julie and I were at a conference in North Carolina at uh, Billy Graham's center called The Cove. We got the call that she had taken a serious turn uh, for the worse, and so we left early uh, a few days before the conference was over, and we flew back to Colorado Springs to be at her, her bedside. She was semi-conscious when we arrived, and she couldn't talk, but they said it was she could very likely still hear, so I started just doing what I knew she would like, and that is I just started reading the scripture to her. I knew immediately that she could hear it, looking at her expression. It's almost like she came to attention in her spirit, and not surprisingly, because she just loved hearing God's word, and I used to love reading it to her there in the memory care home where she was, and the word of her beloved, she just loved it through the voice of her beloved son, her eldest, and so I ended up reading hour after hour that day, and that night, and all the next day. I read through the Psalms, through her favorite passages, on and on it went. And as I said, she was unable to communicate except once. She spoke once through a single warm tear coursing down her cheek. And why did she cry? Well, it was what I was reading. Of all that I had read to her that first day, there was one passage late in the day, the day before she passed away, that that, that drew the most eloquent tear I have ever seen in 30 years of pastoring. It came when she heard the crowning verses of the crowning chapters 
of Scripture. The verses that we'll end with today. The deepest consolation for our grief and the final consummation of our faith. My final reading that night started in verse 1 of Revelation 21. Where John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to see today that someday we're going to be at a loss for words. And uh, for some people, that will be a true miracle. The sight of it will take our breath away. And we'll be saying, so that's what we made possible. John picks it up again in his his description down in verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We've got to summarize here but because there's not time to unpack every verse. But all of that, means this. It's the most important thing about the verses I just read. It's Roman numeral one in your notes. That the new Jerusalem will be, listen to this, historically rooted. Historically rooted. That is, it'll be the fruit of what certain people had done thousands of years before, you and me included. How so? Well, to begin with, as we read, names from old creation history will be written above the gates of New Jerusalem for all eternity. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Why will these names be there? Over the gates that the rest of us will walk through? Well, it's because salvation, we know, comes through the Jews. Access to the city comes through all the believing Jews down through the centuries who copied the scripture, you know, stroke by stroke, who sacrificed bulls and goats as they looked to the final sacrifice. And Jews like Tamar and Perez and Obed and Ruth and uh, Jesse and David who ended up in the line and lineage of Christ and thousands of others who God used in ways that we won't know till glory will be able to enter the city only because of what God did through the Jews. And someday they'll be saying, so that's what we made possible. Those gates up there are open because of our work down here. And the foundation stones of the city will have the names of the 12 apostles. And they'll be saying too, that's our work. The foundation up here is because of what we did down there on earth. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, I laid the foundation and another is building on it. He's talking about the foundation of the church. And now we see that it's also the foundation of uh, the city. So what's going on here? Well, you see, as the church goes up, so does the city. There are parallel projects in parallel universes in time and uh, eternity. Now that he's gone, we know that Christ is doing two things 
simultaneously. He's already told us. He's building his church and he's preparing a place. And the two are connected. It's like one of those drafting tools. My dad started out as an engineer before uh, he became a missionary. And I learned about this from him 50 years ago. They used to call it uh, a, a pantograph, I believe, where whatever you drew with one pen was like mechanically linked on another drafting table or the same one to another pen that drew the same picture except larger. That's how they'd enlarge uh, their work back then which is exactly what's going on between these two projects that he's working on. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says that in coming to the church, we are actually coming to the city. We have come to the city of the living God, Hebrews 13.22, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly, and to the church. Because they're one and the same. The church and the city are the two sides of the same coin, each side being in a different dimension. I wish there were time to unpack this from the rest of Scripture, but it means that our work down here is making that possible too. Because not only do your deeds follow with you, as we saw last time, they go before you. They make possible both the treasure and the treasure trove. As his will is done on earth, His will is done in heaven because we are in partnership with him. It's like one man wrote, he summed it up. My work is his hammer, his level, his saw. Because while we work on earth, invisible walls and gateways are rising in heaven. While we push paper or dig ditches, he builds his kingdom with our sweat. In that kingdom, there are no false starts, no futility. What looks like failure here will be treasure in heaven. And so all the more, as we saw last time, Nothing is wasted because our work goes before us. Long ago, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, wrote a, sh- a short story about this called Leaf by Niggle, as in L-E-A-F. It's about a little man named Niggle who was an artist. And uh, his call in life was to paint intricate designs and pictures on the leaves of trees. And the leaves would fall away and they'd all be wasted or so it would seem. God called him to do it out in the middle of nowhere where no one could see. But he did it because it was the call of God with all his heart as best he could. And each leaf was like a masterpiece. To him it often felt like, you know, the most unnoticed and unnecessary work you could ever possibly do. But when he got to heaven, one of the most beautiful species of trees was full of his leaves. And everyone noticed for all eternity. Leaf by nickel. Someone told a parable about this once. It's about Nehemiah overseeing the, bo- the building of the walls uh, uh, of Jerusalem on earth and about what was going on in heaven at the same time. Listen. Nehemiah is pacing the streets at the first light, examining the builder's progress. He gravely nods in greeting at the first workmen as they begin to appear. Then he pauses, suppressing a smile. For no one can see the great rose dawning as a result of their labor, looming above them like a spaceship. Do you see it? 
We all can through the eyes of faith. Here it is in Revelation 21, the great rose dawning above us like a spaceship coming down out of heaven from God. For not only do our deeds follow with us, they go before us and they'll come back to us. There's so much more, but we must move on. Not only will it be historically rooted, it'll be physically real. With vast dimensions and only the best specifications. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal, and he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. We touched on this uh, a few months ago, the beginning of Christ's letters with Ephesus, because that's what he does there, and now we're ending with it. And so let me just quickly review. God makes it clear here in verse 17 that these are not just angelic measurements, but they are all human measurements. Measurements. You might want to underscore that verse, Revelation 21, 17. It's one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible. They're not just angelic, but human measurements, which means they are real measurements and not just, you know, symbolic or, 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 or mis- mystical. And that's because it will be a real city and not just some mystical state. And someday we'll see, someday we'll see that what some say, you know, is a pie in the sky and the sweet by and by and full of little cherubs and harps and weightless angels and who would ever want to give their lives, go to a place like that where all you ever do is keep your nose clean. Someday we're going to see it come out of the sky as the most celebrated project of time and eternity. And what a project. Because it'll not just be very real, it'll be real big. I mean, if you take 1,200 stadia, which is 1,500 miles in width by 1,500 miles in height, you get a total land area, a a footprint, you might say, of 2.25 million square miles, which is roughly the area of the continental United States. But that's just the first floor. You multiply that by 1,500 miles of height, and who knows, you know, how many floors, you get more living space in New Jerusalem than presently exists on planet Earth. A lot more. This whole world has a land area roughly of, uh, I googled it, 57,280,000 square miles which means the new Jerusalem will have, and get this, 60 times more living space than earth does, and that's assuming a mile between the floors. All told, we're talking 3.37 billion uh, cubic miles. It'll be as much a country as a city. It's gonna be this, a whole world unto itself. If you were to take it all in from a distance, Actually, you'd have to back uh, off a fair way to take it all in, several hundred miles, uh, in fact. But looking at it all at once, the cityscape that you'd see would be unlike any other. The overall line would be up and down with all sorts of mind-boggling architectural uh, features. The laws of physics we know from this chap- these two chapters are going to be different. They're fantastic shapes that defy old creation physics. These majestic ramparts 
stretching upwards, mounting ever higher, somehow to a peak of 1,500 miles. The wall of the city would be barely visible at a distance, just this bright line along the ground, if you could see it at all. But if you made the long journey to the foot of the wall, you'd get quite a different view. In verse 2, it's called a great and high wall, 72 yards in height, which means uh, three-quarters of a football field topping out at 21 stories. At the base of the wall, you'd look up, and it would like tower silently uh, above you. And if you look to the left and to the right, it would stretch on either side of you as far as the eyes could see. There's so much more. But suffice it to say, it'll be real big. It'll have vast dimensions, and it will have only the best specifications. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And then he lists them in a particular order, which is very important, though we don't have time to unpack it. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysophras. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Where do we begin? Every good wall has a foundation. Some of you know we call that a a footer, right? And it's usually just like this strip of concrete along the ground. But the foundation for this wall is going to have 12 layers, multiple stories, one on top of the other before you even get to the wall itself. And these, these layers will not be of you know, rock or masonry or concrete, but rather great blocks of precious jewels, one after the other, kind of like centuries you know, at their posts, permanently stationed, perfectly positioned in endless succession to the vanishing point of both horizons. And each layer will be a different color. And so if you step back, you'd see, really, you'd see this this rainbow. A whole spectrum of colors rising above your head. And on top of all that, the wall begins, which itself, it says, is made of jasper, which is a semi-transparent gem, uh, like a diamond. And it says in verse 23 that the glory of God from the inside will illumine the city. And so the wall will uh, reflect its light, the light coming from the inside. And what a light it will be. Like the, it'll, it'll be like this resplendence, really, the resplendence of a wedding band, this long, lustrous band on a multicolored foundation all around her. From top to bottom, it'll have only the best specifications, calling for features unheard of, unattainable, unimaginable uh, here on earth. I mean, we know what God can do with the creation. The choir just sang a beautiful song about it, but we've yet to see a city whose architect and builder is God. Can you imagine? 
Whenever we build anything, there's always this trade-off, they say, between quality and utility you know, and cost. Even when price is no object, we don't have the technology to keep a structure from aging over time. But the new Jerusalem will be built to last, to last forever in mint condition. From the first layer of the foundation to the highest pinnacle 1,500 miles above, truly, it will be, as we call it, the eternal city. There will be so much more. If we unpacked verses 18 to 21 and the order of the jewels, which are carefully specified here, uh, we'd see that it will be the capital of the eternal kingdom, Roman numeral three in your notes, from where we will civilize a whole new creation. And it'll be the source and center of the new creation. The holy of holies, where God himself is. In fact, it all climaxes with this in verse 22 and following. Because all of this, all that we've seen so far will be like, you know, merely uh, the, the frame for the picture. The, 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 the setting for, for the pearl of great price. The, a vessel for something of infinitely greater value. It starts in verse 22 of chapter 1. These are the verses that called down the most eloquent tear I have ever seen. These are the final 11 verses, but three of them sum it up. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Chapter 23, verse 3, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and they shall see his face, for God himself shall dwell among them. This is the heart of it all. This will be by far the best part of the whole new creation, the presence of God himself in new Jerusalem, filling every you know, cubic inch of those 3.37 billion cubic miles. All that is what I read the night before my mother passed. When at long last, though I didn't know it then, and we were gathered around her bed and we all saw that tear, at long last... She shed her last tear, as will happen with each of you. The next day, I continued reading to her. And as I did, it's hard to put to words what her countenance looked like, her expression as she heard his word. Her eyes were closed, and her face was, was you know, upturned like she was straining to fly. It was like the word of her beloved was calling her away like wind beneath her wings. And so I kept reading. And in the end, not knowing that it was the end, I turned to 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection. And when we got to verse 43, when I read, sown in weakness, raised in power, she opened her eyes and looked straight up. 
It was all I could do to look back down. But I kept reading, looking up and down at those eyes as everyone else did in the room. She kept gazing heavenward without blinking until I read, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And I looked at her and said, Mom, do you remember this verse? It's on Daddy's tombstone in Hong Kong. That was 50 years ago, Mom. Oh, death, where is your victory? And when I said that, she turned her eyes toward me, and they were radiant with colors I had never seen before. It almost filled the room. We were all looking at her. And I took her hand and said it again, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? And after I said that, I felt three gentle movements as I held her hand. It was her signal, three squeezes like she'd do when I was younger. I love you. And she was gone. I looked down and read the next verse. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then came the final verse of the chapter, which was for all of us who were left behind. For the company of family and friends around the bed uh, who had witnessed this and for many others the world over who knew what was happening and who were praying. It's a verse that takes us back to this momentary life of labor in his power. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which my mother had long since had us memorize years before, and so I looked up and said, and it's the application at the bottom of your notes, therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There there was a golden silence in the room, like a weight of glory. And I let it linger. And then I placed my hand on her brow and looked at her and said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we knew that his face was shining on her at that very moment. We'd seen it in her eyes. The day after she passed, my sister wrote this in a letter to family and friends on her Facebook page. She said, Our mother is in heaven with Dean Dendler, our first father, Warren Myers, our second, her sister Mary, and her best love, Jesus. Her best love, Jesus who's the heart of our hope at the living center of new Jerusalem. And we are citizens of that city. Father, we thank you that 
in one day it will all be good. That everything in, will be okay in the end. And so if it's not okay, it's not the end, which will be a resplendence of glory forever and ever in the presence of our Savior. Father, we thank you that you have given us more than ample evidence of our hope, best of all through Scripture, and again and again, as many in this room have seen through our loved ones who pass away. Help this to be the anchor of our soul. As we taste now of the marriage feast of the Lamb and fellowship with one another, we thank you that we can share today in fellowship, in unity. We can share today the presence of Christ, who we will know one day in glory. Give us a deeper taste of this now, as where two or three are gathered, supping together, there you are in their midst. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and through you this week. Amen.